0: Hello and welcome to The Construction Revolution, the podcast that's leading the charge for change in the construction industry. I'm Maria Coulter, The Construction Coach, and I'm on a mission to bring positive lasting change. As an industry, we're crying out for greater profit margins, cash that actually flows, a more diverse and inclusive culture. We need companies to value themselves and their people. We need greater leadership. We need teams that trust each other and less stress. and we also have the small matter of the skills gap to solve as well during this podcast series i'm going to be talking to pioneers from within our industry who are doing things differently to solve these issues i'm also going to be bringing you fresh ideas and perspectives from outside of the industry to inspire and guide you in bringing about some much needed change as henry ford said if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you've always got it's time for a revolution are you ready to join me Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Construction Revolution podcast. This is the last episode of season one and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed making it. When I launched my first episode 13 weeks ago, we had no idea how our lives would change. But the content in these podcasts contains a blueprint to help you through this crisis and beyond. Many of us have been impacted financially by the coronavirus pandemic and we'll be feeling fear in connection with money. But how was your relationship with money before this happened? In this episode, I'm talking to Rob Moore. Rob is one of the UK's top non-fiction authors, including the number one bestseller, Money, No More, Make More, Give More. He became a millionaire at 30, having been an artist, £50,000 in debt five years before. He's co-founder of Progressive Property, the UK's leading property training company, and is host of the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast and The Money podcast. We talk about how your relationship with money is impacted on the emotion that you attach to it and the limiting beliefs that you have around it. Rob talks about how he changed his relationship with money to become a millionaire property investor and the common traits that all millionaires have, which includes having a strong cause, mission, and a sense of purpose. This is something I've talked about many times through the series and will definitely help you get through this crisis. Welcome, Rob Moore, to the Construction Revolution podcast. Rob Moore, welcome to the Construction Revolution podcast. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, what made you write a book about money?
1: Money is something that is so common. I think the fancy word is ubiquitous for us all, we all need it. We all have a different relationship with it. Um, It drives and dictates much of what we can do in our lives. Yet compared to how many people it affects, I didn't feel there was anywhere near enough education on it. Like no one taught me about money at school. Okay, there was economics and you could choose to do economics if you want, but we weren't really sold about how that would help us manage money, make money, master money, have a good relationship with money, the emotional side of money. No one teaches you that stuff in the school system, not at least in the school system that I went. Um, I got into a lot of debt. Well, I say a lot. From 18 to 25, I I compounded my debt up to about 50 grand of bad debt when I was around 25 years old. Um, And I wasn't one of those guys that went out and threw money all over the place. I just got into progressively more debt year by year. So if you think about it, 50 grand is quite a lot in one go, but if it takes you seven years to get into 50 grand worth of debt, you can just get one loan. You can just go a bit over your um, budget each month. And it doesn't take that long before you you look back and you go, whoa, where did those seven years go? And how have I got all this debt? And because I had no education on interest and compounding nature of interest in reverse, as well as in the positive and, um, how to manage money and credit cards and how I felt about money and my addictions to money and my addiction to spending and how I use money to meet my values and paper over some of the cracks about how I felt about myself and all this stuff. It, you just No one had ever taught me it. And then I um, inadvertently got very interested in money and business when my dad had a, a nervous breakdown in his pub and it forced me to go out on my own and not be comfortable working for my parents. It forced me to be entrepreneurial, to take responsibility for my life. I started reading a lot of books, 50 plus a year. Uh, I read a lot of books on, on money and business and, and, and building wealth and personal development. And I realized more and more and more, actually, it's my upbringing. It's my beliefs. It's my emotions and my relationship with money that's directly linked to why I haven't got any. And if I can change that, then maybe I can uh, uh, start earning really good money. Um, I became a millionaire just before the age of 31. So it was a relatively quick turnaround from being in debt to making my first million. And that was really because I I started to study and understand money and the the nature and purpose of it and um, how our emotions and projections and morals and ethics aren't what money is. That's what we put on money. And then I, I just find money the most fascinating subject. So then I just kept studying it to the point where I felt compelled to write a book on it. And I wanted to write a book which was almost like the go-to book for money. It was like the encyclopedia of money. I mean, it was nearly 200,000 words when it went to my publisher and it's been edited and edited and edited. It's still a really chunky book. And it's the story, the history, the psychology, the the strategies and the tactics, the practicalities as well as the emotions of money. And then um, that book kind of uh, escalated my mission. And my personal mission is to help as many people on this planet get a better financial education, to start and scale their own businesses. And through my foundation, especially young and underprivileged people. So you could say it's been a 15-year passionate study, case study, studying as many people as I can. I mean, I know hundreds of of millionaires, 500 millionaires, billionaires. um, And, of course, I've learned so much from them too. I think what most people perceive money is like and rich people are like, they're wrong. Certainly in my experience, from what I've seen, like I know dozens of people worth more than a hundred million and none, not one of them is, you know, power hungry and greedy and evil and using money for illicit means. I'm not saying those people don't exist, but in the hundreds that I've, I've met, not one, not one. So I guess I became really passionate about um, helping other people understand this through this journey of mine.
0: What I really liked about the book was how you describe money and the fact that it's got more of a spiritual connection as well, because I think a lot of people wouldn't connect money with spirituality. So, you know, how do you define money?
1: On a practical level, I think money has about four different definitions. I think it's a universal exchange of value. I think it's a measure and store of value and worth. I think it's a unit of account. And I think it's a good hedge against an uncertain future. So, what that a, a universal exchange of value simply means that we've chosen our current form of money, coins, paper, ones and noughts electronically. That is a, a universally agreed way to exchange goods, services, and value in a consistent form that we all understand, that we all trust, um, and that is convenient. It's not convenient to exchange a leg of the cow that you butchered um, with someone who made a pair of shoes. Because imagine all the different products and services and goods we buy every day. Imagine if we had to barter, how inefficient that would be. Also, if your money was stored in the leg of a cow or in foodstuffs that would decompose, then it's not a good hedge of an, un-future, of an uncertain future because in two weeks, you're £10 worth nothing because your 10 pound is stored in the leg of a cow or a pair of shoes. Um, so it's a very good store of value. and It's a very good hedge against an uncertain future. Cause tomorrow you pretty much know that your tenant, the tenor that you've got is still going to be worth a tenor. but anything that decomposes or could get easily stolen or um, imitated, etc., it's not a good hedge against an uncertain future. It's a unit of account. It's a, it's, it's a, a metric. It's a, a way to count, to know a net worth, to, to, to quantify something. So these are the definitions of money. But what people think is money is greed, and money is power, and money is freedom. Money is none of those things. Money is the universal method of exchange that we agree and we trust. So greed and power and guilt and shame and freedom and desire, these are human emotions that human beings project onto money. And I think when people can separate what money is, from how you feel about money and the emotions you put on money, that's when you start to transcend what money really is. Like if you study the richest people in history, um, that most of those have transcended the emotional state of money and, and they realize it's not good or bad. It's just the things that I've mentioned and people make it good and bad. You can take a 20 quid and you can go and feed 20 kids in Africa for a week. You can take a 20 quid and and buy a magazine of 20 bullets and you could go and shoot those same 20 kids. That's the same 20 pound note. So money isn't evil. Money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money isn't the root of all evil. The root of all evil is human beings. The root of all good is human beings. The root of all charity is human beings. The root of all theft and greed is human beings. So when you learn to manage and master your emotions around money, you see the upsides, you, you see um, how you can have a love affair with money. You see how you can use it for good causes. You understand fair exchange and fair reward and, and manifested value for the, the, the um, manifested scoring and measurement of the value that you give the world, your clients. Then you transcend the emotions and you actually use it for its own purpose and function. And therefore you attract more of it into your life.
0: So where do those emotions come from? Where does that sort of positive or negative connection with money come from?
1: So it comes from the media you consume. It comes from your parents. It comes from the environment in which you were raised. So wherever any of your beliefs and values come from, you know, your primary carers as you were growing up is probably the biggest influence, certainly your environment. If you're raised in Silicon Valley or you're raised in um, Kenya, of course, you're in a different environment, aren't you? And that's going to have a different impact. Whether you had a scarcity or an abundance, overly abundance maybe makes you somewhat dependent or makes you somewhat complacent or taking for granted. But on the, on the flip side, it can make you feel there's an abundance. And when you feel there's an abundance of something, you usually get an abundance of it. If you had a massive scarce mentality or lack, or your parents never had any, or you never raised with any, and you, you, you learned to hoard it, and you, you, know, you, you can then have a, um, a constricted, value and understanding of money. You know, if you consume socialism and communism in in media, or you're around a lot of people who have bad relationships with money or hate the rich, that again is going to impact you. You know, the political standpoints, you know, that you believe in your, the way your morals and ethics and values are formed, they all project out onto money. Money is nothing. Money is neutral. Money is amoral. It's not immoral. It's amoral. You immediately project your values onto money. I'll give you an example. Let's say we have um, an, an alcoholic and you give an alcoholic more money. Where's, where are they likely to spend or invest more of that money into fueling their addiction? Let's say you have a philanthropist um, and someone who just loves to give away money and you give them money. Where is that likely to go? To If, you, if someone uses money for power and control, you give them more money or they get more money, they're going to have more power and control. If someone uses money for a force for good to try and create ventilators or a vaccine for the coronavirus, that's where they're going to put more money. So you actually spend and invest and use your money directly in relation to your values. Um, and so you use money to fill the voids that you have in your life. Like if, if a value of someone is how they look, they will spend money they haven't got on Botox and makeup and, you know, cleansing lotions, etc. So people, it's like, it's not like people haven't got money. They, they, they will always spend money on the thing that they, they deem as most important to them.
0: And how did you start to break through your own sort of limited beliefs and, you know, the thoughts that you had around money? So what was the journey that you went on?
1: I think educating myself with a books and audio books and just putting right some of the misconceptions I had, because you are a product of your environment and where you are raised um, and, and what you've learned in the um, network and the circles you're in, it, it infiltrates your thoughts, your understanding, your model and reality of the world. And I suppose I had a fairly scarce one and I had a, a limited one and I had a, I was an artist. Uh, I had, I was kind of into like political rock, like rage against the machine. So I was never really, uh, I'd see p- rich people and I think wanker. I remember this guy had a Ferrari. One of the, I think at the time, the only person I knew in, Ferrari, in um, Peterborough had a Ferrari and I thought he must be a drug dealer. He must have nicked or done something illegal to make that amount of money. Um, because that was just my myopic uh, limited view. And I started reading lots of books. I read How, um, How to Be Rich by Felix Dennis. I read um, How to Be a Billionaire by Martin Fridson and loads of other books. And these were like way back in 2006 and 7. And I started realizing, wait a minute, if you look at the commonalities in all the millionaires, this is different from what I learned. So I challenged my own worldview, which really helped. Then getting myself out of debt and then creating products and services and getting feedback, running a business along the way and making money and making profit. And then making some mistakes and losing a bit and making some profit and figuring out what works when you make profit and figuring out what doesn't work when you maybe don't quite make any money or you have to maybe refund a bit or, you know, you, you get humbleized by making a mistake. And you're, oh, okay. I better not do that. And adjusting where you spend your money. So I always used to buy clothes, clothes just notoriously go dramatically down in value. And then I started buying property and properties go up in value. When I see the relationship between the two, you know, I'm, I might reduce where buying liabilities, stop buying things that go down in value, start buying things that go up in value, learn what goes down in value and learn what goes up in value. Meeting loads of millionaires, loads and loads of millionaires, and realizing that their worldview was different and their relationship with money was different and learning a bit from each one of those. And, you know, before you know it, you become a product of a new environment and you've got a new set of uh, morals and ethics and values that have been, projected onto you by your environment so you change your environment and you change your outlook i love learning about money i mean there's a lot of things you can learn and study which have no real impact in your life but you learn and study about money in the function and the form that will have a direct impact in your life i.e you will probably save more and make more and your life will be directly better um to the tune at which you unlearn your bad habits. You relearn new habits. You transcend your emotions of money and you understand its form and function and purpose.
0: Definitely. I can totally relate to that. And what are the commonalities that you found? So you've met a lot of millionaires. What commonalities have they had in how they have a relationship with money?
1: Okay. So I actually did a live video on my Rob Moore Progressive Facebook page. And I, ta- I discussed 10 commonalities, um, i.e., common traits I've seen in every rich person I've met and studied, bar none. If you know where to look, there's some historical literature which goes back thousands of years of the richest people pound for pound and per capita, uh, I think, it, it, all the way back thousands of years ago. So I'll just summarize some of those for you. It depends on your source and your experience, of course. Um, one commonality of vastly wealthy people is they seem to have a, a strong cause or mission. You know, they're clear on their life's purpose. That's definitely one. The next thing is that they're prepared to serve vast numbers of people. They don't want to play small there, you know, because if you want to make a hundred million, you've probably got to serve tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of customers. Uh, And now look, if you make Ferraris, you might make 30, 40 grand net profit per car. Um, But if you make post-it notes, you might make one or three pence per pack. So whether you've got a, a high margin, low volume or a low margin, high volume product, you've got to get it out there to vast numbers of people. If you want to be super wealthy, the next thing is virtually all successful people have had some kind of transformational or transcendent event in their life, some kind of awakening or crossroads that they've hit where they've realized, actually, you, you know, they need to, they now believe in something they're committed. They, um, they need to have some kind of cause and something to fight for. That's certainly the third. The fourth is they've transcended the emotions like I've referred to already. Uh, and actually they understand money for what it is. The word currency comes from the Latin "currere," which means to flow. So when you understand, a lot of people think they can hoard their way to wealth. You, can't, you cannot hoard your way to wealth. You have to create value and you have to have money flowing. Um, and if you save everything that you earn, the world will look at you as a hoarder and a constrictor of the flow of money. And it won't It won't send more your way. You get money in exchange for value. So you need to create more value and often creating more value is giving more tips and investing and spending more money and employment and paying taxes and all these things. So your money compounds as you compound the flow of money. Now, of course you have to spend wisely as well. That's not just to mean throw money around left, right and center. The next thing is they understand that money isn't good or bad. They just understand that it it, it is a moral. It's just what, it's just what I defined it as before. Every single millionaire that I've met, they, they have a, a feeling and a sense that they deserve to be wealthy because there are so many people on this planet through their upbringing or what their parents told them or their low self-worth think, oh, well, if I'm really rich, I'm taking off the poor. Or, I just don't deserve wealth and success and opulence. And it's, it's disgusting and gratuitous and obscene to, you know, to have um, opulent material items, etc. And so if you've got any of these limiting beliefs around money, you're going to constrict the amount of money to you. So every wealthy person that I've studied and know, they, they definitely know deep inside they deserve to be wealthy. Now, nearly all of them accept and enjoy opulence. There's a few like Warren Buffett, Richard Koch, people like that who don't have fancy cars or houses or stuff like that but they have opulence in other areas, whether it's investing in their education or their travel or their adventure or whatever, because people see opulence just in material form. If you buy fancy watches and cars and stuff, but opulence is in your diet. And you know, if you buy HelloFresh food every day or you travel, and you spend a lot of money traveling the world and seeing the world. So there's opulence in many different forms. Um, and whether they articulate it that way or not, n- virtually all successful people, they accept opulence into their life in the areas that are most important to them and they, they they have a fundamental deserving of worth within themselves
0: the ones that really sort of resonate with me is like the the strong cause or the mission you know that sense of purpose because I think if you've got that then you know that will attract good things for you also the whole thing about value you know creating value because you know, talking specifically about the construction industry, like money has always been an emotive subject and profit margins are ridiculously low. Like people look at our industry and they think, what is going on? You know, like 2% profit margins, you know, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, the top 10 contractors in the construction news poll Made a, a profit of like it was less than one, less than zero percent. So it wasn't even a profit. It was it was a negative, and that was like the average profit margin. And we've also we've been involved for such a long time in a race to the bottom. So it's always been about like the lowest cost wins.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And then so it's commoditized. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So like you know, especially in the situation that we're in now, you know, we're in this Corona crisis. You know, there's talk about an economic downturn when we come through it. You know, we've got some tough times ahead. How can we start to think or how can the industry start to think differently to to raise its game and raise its expectations? Okay,
1: so I'm a real believer in environment. You are a product of your environment. So if you are in an industry which collectively doesn't make much money and the whole industry believes that and is... Are tuned into that universal truth, as soon as you're in that industry for any length of time, you're going to assume that belief. So I think there's two things you need to do if you're in the construction industry or any industry, which is commoditized and a price war. And like you said, a race to the bottom, i.e. you just undercutting everyone to the point where there's no margin left. There's two things you do. One, you disrupt your industry or two, you get out and get into another industry. There's, there's no other choice otherwise, because I run a property company and you know, I've, I've had builders and construction companies go bust on us. Kelly's quite a big construction company. They went bust on us and we lost a few hundred grand, um, uh, you know, and I know they're only a, often a few days away from bankruptcy in terms of their liquidity. Um, and of course what happens then is the people below them all get affected like all the tradesmen and the, you know, the individual sort of hard workers. So that industry probably needs disrupting. There needs to be a safer, more secure flow of money probably. I can imagine something like the blockchain could really help that industry because, you know, people getting paid at the right time in the right way is really hard in the construction industry. So if someone came out and disrupted that and went, right, I have got a safer, more secure, more risk reward balanced payment system for construction to overcome all the usual challenges in construction of, you know, you, you, you pay your money and you don't know exactly where that money is going. And is all that money tracked into going into the right trades? You know, when we, we gave Kelly a load of money up front and it didn't go to any of the tradesmen, they just swallowed into their debt. And there was no visibility of that. Whereas if there was some kind of blockchain, some kind of visible, safe, secure way, okay, this week's tranche of 300 grand has gone into the project and that's almost escrowed and that's gone into that trade and that trade and that trade and that trade. And the profit is locked somewhere else. And then the, um, the, the, the construction firm gets it once the job is delivered, then the trust in the industry goes up and then the margins can go up. That's just, I mean, I'm just sort of ideating here. I'm not saying that I, I'm the, the fountain of all knowledge in the construction industry, but I do have quite a few hundred properties that I own and manage. So we're doing a hundred unit development as we speak and we're having to, we've had to take on the management of that project ourselves. So we're learning very fast about that. That's one way. I mean, if you look at, you've got to look at the opportunity. So I think that this virus is a great gift to anyone who wasn't pleased with their life, who wasn't inspired by their mission, who wasn't in the right industry, whose industry was dying because you've basically been forced into reevaluating everything. The people who are going to suffer, are the people who are on mission, inspired on it, being successful, and then bang, this has come. But to everyone else, this is just like a perfect um, opportunity for you to reevaluate, to reassess and to disrupt. So I'll give you an example. At the moment, you can't go and do any viewings because of the government lockdown. So someone out there who's inspired, should figure out how to do viewings through virtual reality. Now I called this in my money book years ago, I said, virtual reality viewings have got to be coming. And surely in the not too distant future, why would you need to go and do a viewing for a house um, or a walk around of any project that you're gonna buy? Because if the virtual reality headset is as good as being there, which it bloody well is in computer games, and not that I know this, but I've, I've done my research, in pornography, VR is really good. So in that, where people want it, it's really good. Um, so why can't we get to that level with property viewings and with construction? Well, right now, we've probably, someone, if someone comes out and figures out VR, um, and you can go and view a house, and it's like you're there, and the tech is there, by the way, then that could completely disrupt property. What's the opportunity? That's what we've got to look at. What's the opportunity? In a way, a lot of markets are going to be reset. And this is the fertile ground for disruption for those that are inspired and committed and contrarian enough to look at what's the opportunity. But you have to get out of the space that's creating the myopia. So if you go around talking to everyone, oh, there's no profit. Oh, it's not worth it. Oh, this industry is dead. Oh, you know, then that's just going to consume you. The next thing is, if you really can't find, find a way out of that, you've got to get into a new industry. You've got to start a new business model. Because surely, don't they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result?
0: My mission is here to, to bring different mindset, different way of thinking. That's what the construction revolution is all about. And getting people from outside of the industry as well to bring in sort of fresh ideas and, and fresh perspective. And that's one thing I'm bringing in. So I've got a, an online program that I'm gonna be launching in a couple of weeks called rich thinking for uncertain times and it's about giving people the opportunity to pause reflect and reset so you know we've been paused but if you reflect back to where you were before like do you really know who you are do you really know what your values are do you know what your purpose is you know all of those things that you've been talking about to get people to really think about what they really want and start to get in a positive mindset because I think you know, that's how you, the people have got to disrupt themselves as well, haven't they?
1: Sometimes comfort is not just in the form of contentment. Sometimes comfort is in the form of, well, I do what I do because I don't know any other way and I'm scared to do something else. So I'm sure there's plenty of people who are stuck in an industry or a niche within their industry or a way of doing business that they do. And their definition of comfort is the non-disrupted. Um, complacent or fear-based. I can't try anything else. It might fail. I'm scared of losing what I've got, but if the profit margins are so low, what have you actually got? So uh, I'm a big believer in disrupting yourself because if you don't disrupt yourself, a virus will come along and disrupt you, or a recession will come along and disrupt you, or a competitor will come along and disrupt you. Um, I've got a a, a sadistic pleasure, a, um, a, a real buzz and energy out of this virus, not what's happened to humanity and people's health, because obviously I'm sensitive to that but how it's completely reset our industry and business in general and people's thought process and therefore the new opportunities that there are that are out there and how quickly you can pivot and understanding what new you know what new possibilities and how you realize you held on to truths and beliefs only because they were normal to you and you were rutted in to believing that way like for example you know i always wanted to run physical events because i believe in connection and community and of course now I can't and I have to run online events. And we've launched five online events in the last five weeks and we've done nearly a million pounds in cash in the bank in the last five weeks for events we didn't even have five weeks ago online. And that's exciting. And of course it's a bit unnervy and there's a lot of on, on fast ongoing testing and you don't know if it's all going to work and you haven't figured everything out yet and it's not perfect and it's not finished and it's not ready. But I, I wrote a book called start now, get perfect later. And I really live by that mantra. So Comfort is the enemy of greatness.
0: We have got that opportunity now to disrupt ourselves. But also I think going back to what you said at the beginning about the value bit, you know, about money being in exchange for the value that you give. Hmm. I think it's an opportunity for the industry to really kind of like get clear about the value that they bring. Cause I think part of the problem is that people in the industry don't value themselves enough because other people don't value them. In the the, the domestic market, for example, I think because clients tend to just go for the lowest price. But part of that is because they're not given anything else to look at. You know, if, if the domestic market were really kind of clear on, you know, what they're about, what the values are, what they bring to the table, how they present themselves, and also, you know, how they use, get more into like sustainability and caring for the planet in sustainable materials then i'm sure that people would start to to look at look at those companies differently
1: people do not buy based on price they buy based on value and you can buy something that's very cheap and you think it's rubbish and you can buy something that's very expensive and you think it's valuable to you so this whole thing on price and value that's probably got lost in translation in the construction industry because it's more about price and less about value um so i don't know if you can see behind here but there's like um, a sort of a, a, a small wing that we've extended onto my house. It's got like a, um, a full glass wall. I, was, I did that so I could see my cars, but all you can see is my kids' bikes. <laughs>
0: I did see your um, car. Is it a red car?
1: Yeah, there's a, a, um, a Ferrari Testarossa at the front and a Lamborghini Aventador at the back. If someone, when they came over my house, had done 3D renderings um, and really shown me the difference in quality and given me some extra ideas on how I could have used the space and even become part architect, part interior designer, as well as just a construction firm, they probably would have won my business because even though I was, price was a factor, of course it's a factor, but you know, I wanted to have a vision of what I wanted and no one really showed me that when they did this work because there's a good few hundred grand worth of work's been done on this house and in Peterborough, that's like a few million quid in London. So anyone in any industry, but of course with your podcast is a construction revolution. What extra value can you bring? Always do more than you're paid for. If you're, if you're given a job to, to do the garden, sweep up and do extra than what you're paid for. Now you don't do more than what you're paid for to put you in negative margin, because what you do in your service isn't just about the cost. It's about the service and the value. So retail has been hit really hard, obviously. Um, we all know that, but how how has retail fought back or the retail that's done all right has fought back or how's the high street fought back? Well, a good example is Barclays. When you used to go in, it used to look like a bank. And now when you go into Barclays, you know, it's this service, there's places to sit, you get offered tea and coffee. Um, It doesn't look like a bank anymore because they've realized that they need to offer extra additional peripheral services and they need to care and connect and serve. And that's how they've um, survived on the high street, you know, for example, and I know they're a bank, but you know, a bank aren't just a teller like they used to be, they're a service now. So any commoditized business has got a race to the bottom where the margins are reducing, where you just, just seen as a product, really, even if it, even if it's a service, it's still seen as a product. You need to get more service based. You need to think about the extra value. How can you wow the client? What more can you do? What can you do that they didn't expect? What can you do that none of your competitors do? And people will pay for that. People will pay for that. But what, because there's a race to the bottom, no one's thinking of a race to the top. So if you want to stay in your industry and you want to disrupt your industry, maybe you've got to be the first one to step up and take a race to the top. And is that risky? Yes. Might you fail? Yes. But if you win, you're going to win big. And what would you rather do? Fail trying to do do something that will change the industry or succeed with everyone else in a race to the bottom?
0: yeah and race to the top is actually one of the hashtags that i use like on my social media as well because that's what i'm trying to encourage my clients to do so i work a lot with smes and micro businesses you know a lot of small builders companies like that and that's what i'm sort of working with them to think differently to think about how they get their value across and start their own race to the top so i think that is just um so important for our industry But one thing that's just occurred to me, do you know when you were talking about um, you're kind of a product of your network, you're a product of the environment that you're in, so the environment impacts on how you think about money. Well, there's a lot of um, forums, you know, you get a lot of Facebook forums and they've got thousands of people in there, Mm -hmm. but there can be such negative places. I mean, I think they're set up as a positive to kind of support each other but then they just end up talking about all the negative stuff that goes on in the industry. And, you know, I think it can be really difficult to sort of to break through because that, that's, those are the conversations that they're having like consistently.
1: Get the fuck out then. I don't know what language I can use on your podcast. But it's a bit like, <laughs> get the fuck out. Um, what I find is there's way more positive than negative out there. I find, but human nature is to see the negative. And there are a few groups where it is mostly negative and I try and, well, I do stay out of those. We've just had a comment here from Ben, the problem with, the, with construction is it doesn't like change. And you've just talked about there are groups which are negative. What both of those statements have done is created something universal out of an ecosystem. You're an individual, you're a human being. So just because the construction industry doesn't like change doesn't mean you can't change. And just because there's a group with a lot of negative people in it doesn't mean you can't leave it and go in a more positive group. So you have to take responsibility for your own direction and your own plan and your own vision. And like I said before, with construction, now look, you might be happy doing what you're doing. You might be safe and comfortable. You might be doing all right. You might like 2% profit margin. And I'm not telling anyone to change who doesn't want to change, but if, if your mar- margin is nothing and you don't like the industry and you don't like your results and you don't like the money you're earning, you have to change it. And I say at the end of all of my content, every video, every podcast, I always say it. People have heard me say it thousands of times. People can recite it themselves. If you don't risk anything, you risk everything. And I have to be honest, I'm not in the construction industry, but I would see it as insanity to be in a business where the margins have gone down and down and down and down. And people are getting more and more and more negative and I'm getting more and more and more negative. And like Ben has said on this feed, the construction industry doesn't want to do more. I don't want to do more because I resent my clients and I resent the industry. At some point you've got to go, I'm out of here or I'm changing it. Get rich or die trying, you know, at least try, at least try to change it. Um, I hear you. I know the industry quite well, because like I said, I've hired a lot of construction firms and individuals, and I've got a property development business. In that industry, I'd probably rather be at the top end than the bottom. In a recession, people are, you know, the, the affluent are usually still spending. And you've got to find a way to create extra value. So going back to what that the billionaire was taught by his mentor, whenever you get given a job to do, you do more than you're paid for. Um, and you do more than you're paid for, and you'll get more than you're paid for. And if if that particular individual or company doesn't recognize that you've done that. Someone else will go and do the job you want, not the job you've got. And you know, when people want more money, what do they do? They go to their boss and say, oh, I want to pay rise. That's the wrong way to do it. That's the wrong way to do it. What you do is you go and do the job you want. And then your boss will have to recognize that and pay you that money or you'll get headhunted or you'll be able to get that job somewhere else. Cause you've got a better CV. So you always got to be thinking one step ahead when it comes to value. I'll give you an example of this. We used to do, well, we will still do, but right now we can't because we're in lockdown. But we used to do monthly masterminds where we would mastermind once a month for a whole day, a meet-up, And those masterminds would be five to 25 grand, depending on the level and who they're for. And um, now uh, in the lockdown, we uh, do six month masterminds once a week online. And the price is three grand plus that. So the price is half or a third or a quarter or an eighth of what it used to be. And it's weekly, not monthly. And you've got multiple mentors. So we've reacted very fast and we've created a new product in a new form, which doesn't undermine or undercut our existing ones because they're different. And we've gone six times the value. But the margin will probably be better because it's online and there's no renting of rooms and, you know, all the overhead that you'd have running events. So if we'd have gone our oh, way, well, you want to join a monthly mastermind online, that's fine. It's 10 grand plus VAT, six months, once a month meet up on Zoom. Everyone would have gone bugger off. You know, the, the market is, is expecting more. So we give it more.
0: And I think one of the things that just occurred to me as well when you were talking is about the it comes back to the beliefs thing doesn't it because like if people think that you know people don't appreciate what they're doing and clients don't appreciate all they ever want to do is the the lowest price like if they're constantly telling themselves that Mm. then they're totally kind of disconnecting from why they're doing it in the first place because like you know the whole thing about sort of brand is about making an emotional connection with your client and the whole thing about value is like, you know, what, what can you do for your client? What value can you bring? Um, and I think if, if people have got all of these like limited beliefs and loops that they're going around in their mind, then it's almost like they're cutting themselves off from, from what they could be doing, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I get how, you bec- like I said before, I've said this loads of times, you become the product of your environment and you become who you hang around. So I get the self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. Margins go down. You start to get resentful. You're the only clients you can get are price-based jobs. So then you start to resent the client, and then you don't want to give them value, and then the client resents you, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of doom. I get it, and that change has to come from you. You either get out, or you increase your prices and hold your breath, or you create more value, or you put the gratitude out to the client before they put it out to you. But you have to, you have to uh, kickstart that change.
0: One of the quotes in your book, um, so it's about money and emotions. So, Warren Buffett, who I think you talked about before, who's a billionaire, one of the richest people in the world, said, Until you can manage your emotions, don't expect to have wealth. You know, extreme emotion destroys wealth. So, how do you start to, to manage your emotions?
1: So, I think volatile emotions um, and ma- mania emotions, roller coaster emotions, have the ability to damage your wealth because when you're feeling high, you'll make loose, flippant financial decisions. And when you're feeling low, you'll make loose, flippant financial decisions. So you need to separate and transcend your spending habits from your emotions. Now, emotions in and of themselves won't um, guarantee a lack of wealth as long as you separate them, i.e. when you feel overly down, get away from thinking about making any spending or investing decisions. When you get overly up, get away from thinking about making any spending or investing decisions and make your spending and investing decisions in a more neutral, balanced state. So I'm quite an emotional guy. I do have quite ups and downs. Um, What do they call us? Empaths. I feel people's energy and I can get really excited and I can get frustrated and impatient and down as well. I'm not, I'm not maybe as level as other people around me. And, and my, my biggest danger to my wealth is in those extremes. So when I'm like high on life and everything is amazing, I'll just be much more loose with my spending. And, I, and I'll just, yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah, I'll have that. Yeah, you can do that. And, and then the bills come in at the end of the month or the end of the year. And then of course you've still got the VAT run and our VAT runs are millions now. And you've got your, your, your tax to pay in, what is it? Is it June, July, and then um, January? Um, but then when you're overly down and depressed, uh, again, you can either constrict or spending and you, know, you need to generate clients. So you've got to invest in marketing or you can spend a lot of money to try and feel better about yourself. I used to buy lots of expensive designer clothes because I was ultimately trying to feel better about myself and, and wear self-worth on the outside rather than the inside. Um, Or impatience, I've got to have that thing and buy it now instead of waiting for it to come in the sale later on in the year or price comparing for a little while. So that's what it means. And I mean by, you know, extreme emotions will erode. wealth. you can have extreme emotions. You can be an adventurer and you can go through your highs and lows of emotions. Just don't spend and invest and make important financial decisions in that time.
0: That's definitely good advice. What do you think that we need to do to survive this crisis?
1: Wow. I mean, I don't, I am humble enough or not arrogant enough to think I've got all the solutions for this virus. You know, I talk to people regularly, business owners, peers, people in my companies, mentors of, you know, what, what we think is going to happen and where it's going to go and how long is the lockdown going to last? And is there going to be social distancing afterwards? And how long is it going to last? And when are they going to open the social venues and all these things? And the, the reality is, no one knows. So I don't want anyone to think I'm a sage or a futurist in that regard because I'm not. I'm just figuring it out as I go like everybody else. And I think we, we need to have some humility in what's happening that it's Mother, mother Nature has exor- exercised her muscles on us and proven to us how vulnerable and insignificant we are. And I think it's wise to embrace that humility. But I am making plans virtually every day. I am trying to figure out how can I not just survive, but thrive. Uh, And how can I turn this into an opportunity? And that's where my brain is going. So I think one thing is have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. I think you've got to have plans for at least the end of the year or the start of next. So for maybe 12 months to expect that you might not be able to get out beyond social distancing laws. I think you've got to try and disrupt your industry and yourself and find out not just a lot of people are waiting for the lockdown to be over. No, no, no. Screw that. What can you do now? How can you generate money now? What new product and service can you start now? What business that you wanted to start for your whole life and you'd say you've never had time? Well, you've got time now, do it now. Start now, get perfect later. I think have conversations with a lot of people and work out what they're doing. Hang around the right circles. People who are productive and proactive and trying to figure this out. Instead of people who are like, oh, the world's over or anyone who sells is you know, evil or whatever. Because there's plenty of people that are scared. There's a lot of people that are bored. Take scared, add bored. And then add a keyboard to that and you have got a dangerous person. Got to get rid of all that. Get away from all that. Solution focused, opportunity focused. Now, I don't know what the future to the um, construction industry holds. I don't know what the future to any industry holds. I know I've got about six different plan variances for what my industry might hold. And I know I'd be wanting to have that if I were in any other industry. And I know I'm going to do what it takes to see the opportunity. I'm going to listen to my market very carefully. I'm going to find out what their their pleasures and pains are right now, their challenges and opportunities. And I'm going to try and feed the market the new strategies and tactics that they need. Um, Learn as much as I can because now's a great opportunity for learning because we've been gifted some time or many of us, not all of us. Um, And you learn more in in times like this than you do in times when it's easy. And that's all I can really say. Uh, But if you search my name, Rob Moore, You can find me on pretty much every social channel. So, if you like audiobooks or books or podcasts or YouTube videos, I'm there on them all in your face. (laughs) Thanks, Maria.
0: Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Rob Moore. I hope it's inspired you to think about your own relationship with money, to question what emotions you are attaching to it. I would really recommend reading Rob's book, which I read last year. It's incredibly comprehensive. And I love the spiritual element to it as well. If you need any help exploring your vision, mission, purpose and limiting beliefs, I'm launching my first online programme called Rich Thinking in Uncertain Times. In this four week programme, I will be getting you to explore your values and beliefs and where you want to be at the end of this crisis and beyond. We'll be exploring what's holding you back and how you can programme your mind for success. If you want to find out more, click on the link in the show notes or email me at maria at constructioncoach.co.uk. It's been my pleasure to bring this podcast series. I hope you've enjoyed listening and please do like, rate and subscribe so that others can find them too. I'll be back soon with season two. Until then, keep leading the charge for change to start your own construction revolution.